Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. My first session training with the team, I wasn't on the squad at the time, my first session training with the team, and I'm getting all these shouts for squeeze, but nobody nobody told me this language, so all I can hear is what I think is people saying, easy. And I'm like, oh my god, day one, am I already going too fast? <laughs> I am so good at this. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Faster, the Dr. Hutch podcast supported by Cycling Weekly magazine. I'm Michael Hutchinson, also known as Dr. Hutch, and I'm a former professional cyclist and a national time trial champion. This podcast looks at the simple question of what makes a fast bike rider. Actually, it's not that simple a question. The most efficient way to get from A to B um, is to go on the exact lap split that your physiologist has told you you're all capable of um, and just hold it exactly there until you get to exactly zero. Tank goes empty right at the very finish and that, that never happens. Um, so if you if you accept that that isn't going to happen, it's probably slightly more efficient to go a little bit too hard and then sort of like tip tail off towards the end. This time, I'm talking to Team GB rider Katie Archibald. Katie is Olympic champion in the Team Pursuit, a world champion in Team Pursuit, Omnium and Madison. She's one of the most distinctive riders in the current British team and has a reputation as an intelligent athlete, one who analyzes what she's doing with a lot of care. So my father's a four minute mile runner. My brother's a four minute, 400 meter swimmer. And I'm a pursuiter and the world record is a uh... Uh, four minutes, ten seconds. Um, yeah, with a four-minute family, and uh, we, we all like to put it down to the um, mitochondria my, my mother gave us. But there's something that something that my dad said a hand in. She also writes and talks about cycling better than most cycling journalists. In fact, she used to write a column for the magazine I write for, Cycling Weekly. I thought getting shown up by younger, more effective competition was something I was safe from after I stopped racing, and I could not have been more wrong about that. But anyway. Old rivalries aside, this time I started by asking her how she dealt with a pandemic-blighted year faced with almost no competitions, no Olympics, just training and uncertainty and training and uncertainty. Yeah, I think um, I think your your own frame of reference comes from who you train with. So I've trained with the Joanna Rousels of the world that are so tied to training and so tried to... Um, also just the, the individualistic nature of their training as well, of um, this enthusiasm for self-improvement for uh, the intrinsic rewards um and so when you kind of when you contend with something like that every day you think oh gee, yeah well, i'm all about racing i'm all about racing i don't like training hard i don't do this for me <laughs> you know and um and you kind of you build up an identity uh in like 
uh, in an anti to somebody else's identity. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I did that for a long time, especially in the British Cycling Programme, where we have um, such support that you can focus on training more so than racing. Um, and so, again, it's like the grass is greener. You think like, oh, well, I'm like total race obsessed. I would race every weekend if I could. Uh, I kind of hear these stories of, I think Hannah Barnes used to claim that her training programme was just sort of uh the Cheney on a Thursday um like racing at the weekend maybe there was like a track league thrown in there or something it was kind of like constructed around um the 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 like pretend races sorry I'm on a podcast doing air quotes with my fingers Um, that's okay I I think I think we heard the air quotes we heard the air quotes yeah (laughs) um and uh I think left to my own devices I'd probably um join that join that crew um but lockdowns kind of convinced me convinced me that I'm better than that I think I think I have actually got a taste for training now a taste for self-improvement and uh um, I'm gonna come up I, I've gone straight how many minutes um three minutes this is the straight into bragging I think I'm gonna be all, all the stronger for it um out the other end yeah, it's I kind of I would have classified myself as someone who liked racing when I was when I was competing, and I found that through lockdown, I actually started putting training programs together and getting to sort of ninety five percent compliance on the training programs I constructed for myself because it came became kind of self perpetuating, um, and I think it can be. I think most of the people who race well have you know an enthusiasm they get a sense of achievement out of the training, even if they don't like it, they come home feeling they've done something worthwhile. Well, it's when you start to replicate the enjoyment that you get from races in your training sessions. And I think what's really shown up in, in lockdown is because um, the week is no longer interrupted with any, it's not even just the racing being taken away, it's all external um, simula- um, simulation. And so you can you can follow these seven day patterns um, for like six weeks in a row, I'll, I'll be following the same seven day routine and so you really get a taste for the way to optimize those seven days so by the time you get to week six you know exactly where you're going to take it easy where you're going to push on and the the and what you can get out of those like those two key training sessions is so much more by week six then you get to week six and it's like you, you need to kind of shift the stimulus again but i really really sold on um well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't rocket science, was it? Of just can off everything else and really focus on um, considerate training and it, it pays off. Well, it's, yeah, but it, it's like, it's been like a year-long training camp um, for, for, for athletes because there's nothing else going on. Yeah, but here's the funny thing. We haven't done any training camps and I think there's been a big benefit. So we would... Uh, yeah, but, it, but it's been one big training camp. You've been on okay, the training right. camp since March. Yeah, yeah, well, it's one big training camp and that means there's no travel days because that's kind of what screws us for it. Because you you like you have to fit a travel day in, and you like oh well you're away for ten days, and then that sort of messes up the rotation you were working on when you're at home, and you've got a gap at four a.m. And so you basically, um, I feel like we've all read the same books and seen the same TED talks now of the idea that four hours sleep is the same as a hangover, and like these kind of things where you're like I can't believe they're getting us <laughs> getting us up at this time. Like they'd be they'd be so angry if I'd gone out clubbing the night before, but you're going to make me feel the same way getting on a flight at whatever. Um, yeah, height of privilege, but it 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 really does feel like uh, it's it's made a difference. These small adjustments. A few a few years ago, quite a few years ago, I had the brilliant idea of working on a ten day week. So I invented three extra days so that I could work on a ten day training cycle, which meant that my weekend coincided with everybody else's weekend about once every three months. Um, and it was very. It's, it's just, even if you're kind of you're a pro athlete and you think that that's all you're doing, it's surprisingly hard to sustain that. I lasted, you know probably 10 probably five or six 10 day cycles 
I ought perhaps to explain this 10-day week thing just in case you're getting the impression that I'm in any way strange. In about 2005, I decided it would be easier to fit all the training sessions and recovery days into a 10-day cycle rather than a 7-day cycle. And the simple way to do this was to just invent three new days and rewrite the calendar so that it would be all 10-day weeks. So I invented Hutch Day, Michael Day and Richard Day. Richard's my middle name. Um, and I had a 10-day week. Now, what you won't have worked out yet, probably, is that if you do this, if you add three extra days, all the other days come adrift too, so that by the second week of my new calendar, the day everybody else thought was Thursday, I thought was Monday. And the whole thing actually ever came back into alignment about once each three months. In the end, I gave the whole thing up after about two months, which is two months of your calendar. It's only about a month and a half of mine, because in my calendar, there were only nine months in a year. The only way to make it work. And the problem was that races happen on weekends and I, you know, they, they can't be moved. So you're stuck with that. And trying to deal with that was just impossible. So in the end, I went back to the same boring seven day week that, that everybody else has and just dealt with it. It was about the same era that I built my own wind tunnel in the living room. Um, but that's probably a story for another time. I got into an argument with our SNC coach. Uh, I would have with Lawrence had he been on the call. Um, pulling my hair out again, like, you know, there's there's nothing holding me to the Roman calendar anymore. There's nothing like, because we kind of work on a seven day rotation because um, the gym coaches, the gym I go to, I can only go to Monday, Monday to Friday. Track sessions will be Monday to Friday. So that, like, they, they create these pinpoints in a week. And I'm there, I'm like, I'm training from home. I've got my own squat rack at home. I'm doing like, everything is either road, turbo, gym, I'm in control. I'm like, stop setting, <laughs> like we have to change this. Um, yeah, I tried for a month, it was a disastrous month. Um, I, Maybe, maybe if I'd had more backing and it wasn't like I hadn't gone into it with such an argument. Um, but the funny thing is that the fallout has really sold me on um, really sticking to seven days. Maybe we can have this conversation a year from now and I'll have swung back and I'll be like, it's all about three day rotations. <laughs> it's all about three days. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to seven days for the moment because it was certainly in normal times. It was just weirdly difficult. It felt was, it was so unsettling. It was like a sort of a... I wouldn't say it was a torture, but it was like a sort of a psychological experiment that someone was doing on you. You felt oddly cast adrift from normal society because, you know, you'd got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I'd got Michael Day and Hutch Day and Richard Day because those are my three names. And you, you would find yourself saying to someone, oh, I, I can come on Michael Day, and they'd go, what? Um, it was quite odd. I mean, for someone like, you know, obviously... You know, you work on a four-year cycle. You know, how difficult is suddenly chucking a five-year cycle into that? And the whole of the Olympics, which I think is going to happen at the time, the time of the time of recording the Olympics was going to happen. Uh, and how difficult it is to to deal with that extra year. Never mind the fact that it's been such a weird year. Um, the extra twelve months in themselves are that difficult. Yeah, um, unspoken rule amongst our training group is that none of us reference the idea that the Olympics wouldn't happen. I should have I should oh, have made it spoken for you at the start. <laughs> yes, mm. um, uh, about once I don't know once every few weeks, uh, Nia Evans sends an article into our WhatsApp group that I, I've stopped clicking on them because the headline will just read something along the lines of "The Olympics will happen," says uh, like uh, either like IOC chief or or like Prime Minister Japan or so. On. Um, so yeah, that's that's the first thing. The Olympics that we are preparing for. Um, what consumes my thoughts more is the um, the follow through because what I'm looking at is 
Tokyo 2021, Birmingham Commonwealth Games 22, Glasgow World Champ- Multidiscipline World Championships 23, into Paris Olympics 24. That sounds um, like fun. It does sound like fun. And do you know what? It's, um, it very much makes Tokyo feel like the start of something, like this, this springboard into what I'm envisaging will be the biggest four years of my career. And I guess especially the, I mean, yeah, four years is probably too long to be um, kind of constantly on the hunt, as it were. But this serious respite um, certainly gives you a hunger for, for a plan like that. And inevitably, I guess when I say you say something like that aloud, and there, there will be something that has, has to give. Um, but yeah, I got total enthusiasm for, for those four years, especially based on my experiences coming out of Rio. It really did, for me, Rio was the start of... Um, like a sort of a swing up in my career. It didn't it didn't mellow afterwards. If anything, it's sort of mellowed in the in the midpoint as we just sort of build build back in. Oh, it's not even the midpoint. It's sort of mellowed just before Tokyo, which is when you don't want it to mellow. <laughs> when when you say mellow, what are that what what do you mean by mellow? Because I can think of several different meanings for it. I mean, it could be anything from a kind of a, I really relaxed into being who I am and being a top level competitor, or it could mean it all went a bit wrong, but I tried to style it out. Yeah, um, I am. <laughs> I am styling it out. No, I, I, I actually I feel what's the word? There isn't a nice but I, I feel very confident about Tokyo. I'm so excited. I am. I'm more than anything just excited to see what we can do with that team pursuit team. But um, the. 2020 World Championships and the 2019 World Championships, um, I had bad experiences. <laughs> I'll say I didn't enjoy. Um, you know, 2019 was all right. Um, I ended up riding in the Omnium and through my place as reserve. I wasn't picked for the Omnium. I rode the Omnium. Uh, I crashed. I um, ended up with concussion. I couldn't then contend in the Madison. The next year was poor. Um, I didn't have a good preparation into that World Championships. Uh, I was not selected for the Madison. This time, it wasn't that I just missed out. It was that I was kind of told in explicit terms, you are not ready for this. You are not prepared for this. You are not good enough for this. Um, And this was like the Olympic Olympic World Championships. This is your last... So your last competition to contend before the Games. Um, It was a super, super big deal. Um, And... It actually sort of reset just as we um, like reset confidences, I suppose, just as the games got cancelled. Um, and so uh, I was going to say I wouldn't put myself in a category of people that were blessed with the delay. Um, I think there's some people that say like, oh, you know, I was injured or I was something like um, I didn't feel that way at all. Um, like a really pretty keen to, <laughs> to kind of like get on my belt and get like the sense of wanting to prove yourself when you when you've just had. When you've just had um, the chance taken away, where you like really, really, really want to um, kind of get all those insecurities out and be like, "I'm, I'm good enough for this," um, it was the the chance to prove that you're good enough was delayed a year. Um, but it's closer now, and uh, I'll show you us all very soon. Can we can we talk a little bit team, bit about team pursuit? I mean, obviously, I'm a, a huge fan of your solo work, but um, we'll get to that in a second. I'm, I've always been team pursuit is my. It's either my second or third favorite track discipline. Obviously, my heart belongs to the individual pursuit. Um, and obviously, there's no one who enjoys more an individual pursuit qualifying session than me. Um, you know, the early mornings in a velodrome for three hours while unknown Ukrainians ride around the track. I cannot get enough of that. But, but let's talk a little bit about team pursuit. It's, 
it's probably the most analysed event in cycling. Would that be fair? Yeah, it would be. Um, and I think it's always a bit of a, not a frustration. I, I likewise, fellow uh, Team Pursuit File, um, Pursuit of File. And uh, just when you contrast it to the big American sports that are totally covered in analysis, you would characterise them more with your bunch races. Um, like how much analysis goes into a swimming race um, in the way that we've really taken Team Pursuit to pieces. Katie is right about the way different analysis applies across different sports. But from a sports science point of view, Team Pursuit is an event that you can study almost endlessly. For an Olympics, the top teams will start off by working out what time they think is going to be needed to win, and then they go on to work out how you make a team go that quickly. You can calculate the power needed for each of the four riders in the string at any point, the recovery period, how much time you lose with each changeover, because you lose a bike length each time, obviously, and that's about a tenth of a second. You need to allow for the slipstream of the other team on the track, and for the fact that in a velodrome, the air swirls anti-clockwise around the track in the same direction as the racing. Exactly how much it swirls depends on the design of the building, and even what events have been running on the track before yours. So if you wanted to break the world record in a team pursuit, ideally you'd be onto the track for qualifying straight after a big bunch race had just finished. You can work out the torque each rider needs to get off the start line, and you can work out the rate at which each of them is burning through their anaerobic reserves. The big challenge is how you match that to the riders you've got. Dan Bigham's Hoob Watt Bike team were able to beat some of the bigger national teams at the World Cups a couple of seasons ago, and the main reason they could do that was their ability to adapt their racing strategy to the fact that they only had four slightly randomly chosen riders available within the team. One of their inventions was having the lead rider change into third place in the string rather than going back to fourth place at the very back, which gave that last rider an extra couple of laps recovery. There are as many ways to ride a Team Pursuit as there are Team Pursuit riders. It is absolutely fascinating. I, um, I watched a World Championship Team Pursuit with um, Simon Jones, who's a former GB performance director, then went to Australia. Um, he'd been all over the place now. And we were watching with the men's... Um, the men's event, you know, I honestly can't remember what year it was. It would have been 2018 or 2019, sitting in the stands. And after a lap and a half, he went, ooh, oh, that's not good. And he said, and I looked at him and he said, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. And about two and a half kilometers later, later it all fell apart. And it's that kind of, and I, I don't think, I mean, I think Simon could spot that because he's been through so much of the performance analysis that he knows what to look for very early on. And I, I don't think anyone is smart enough to watch everything and remember everything to just intuit that. I think that comes from, I think that comes from the analysis. And I don't know. I mean, I wrote a few team pursuits long, long ago in the days when they shouted "go" and, and off you went, and there was nothing like the amount of effort put into it. I honestly don't know, from your point of view, whether the number of the rehearsals you can do, the race simulation you can do, the analysis you can do, the videos you can watch. I don't know whether that makes it harder or easier as an athlete. Does it mean you have to think about more or does it mean you have to think about less? What's funny about that story is that it um, kind of, it can paint team pursuit as both an exact science and also as something that can go wrong. Um, so how does it go wrong if we know, if we know that you shouldn't go out too hard, if we, uh, if we know that this is the lap split that we're after? And the, um, I, we have a coach on the sidelines that's walk us to a 10th and it's, uh, it, 
doesn't sound like a lot. I guess if you if you were to visualize a tenth in the speed and have it laid out as a distance, people would maybe um, understand more how, how you can really feel on occasions you can really feel a tenth. Um, and I think the the biggest thing for me that the analysis brings is a translation of sensation. So it wouldn't really work. You can't take someone um, straight in and start explaining uh, explaining their ride to them and think that'll make them better in their second ride. They almost have to spend a year um, feeling feeling the input, having that displayed as an output, and then putting the two together um, to create better feedback conversations and uh, sort of quicker, quicker evolution of um, agreement ideas and sort of the way to ride. And that's what kind of bugs me if ever somebody like if we come off a team pursuit ride and nobody will want to have a conversation or want to look at the graph and actually that well that that basically never happens because we're all in pretty strong agreement that you should be able to have a conversation that paints a graph that um can tell you exactly what the video is going to look like that will tell you what um like even if you don't know what the opening split was you'll know if it was too fast you know and these, these maybe sound like obvious things but um it's uh it's st- there's still like a great satisfaction um, being years and years into this event that's really quite niche and to to have such an intimate understanding of something that's, that's you know it's a bit stupid isn't it <laughs> it's like the, it, it, it is a little trivial I mean it's it's not developing vaccines is it it's not developing vaccines but I can tell you how somebody feels or how this small group of people um, how they feel based on the way that their hips move I can I can tell you like I can I can shout at you to correct what is going wrong at any given time. You know, it's 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 this really odd um, but satisfying feeling of really knowing what you're doing. Successful riders are usually a lot like Katie. They're immersed in the world of their events. If you ask a road sprinter like Mark Cavendish to tell you about the run into a finish, you'll realise that there's almost no detail they won't have logged. So it's not surprising that in the controlled environment of track racing, that goes double. But they're not doing it on their own either. They've got coaches, they've got physiologists, they've got lots of staff that we're pretty familiar with. But there's also one you hear a bit less about, and that's the performance analyst. Their job is to break down the demands of the event, the abilities of rivals, and to rake through the really fine details of the rider's performance so they can work out exactly what they're going to have to do to win. I wanted to hear a little bit more about this side of things, so I talked to Steph Blair, who's been a performance analyst at British Cycling for the last few years. I asked her what her role entails. The the role really of the performance analyst comes in to help um, work alongside the coach and the different practitioners to provide the data basically to back up some of the interventions that we're trying to put in place. And they're really seen as the gatekeeper that houses all the information that we're getting both from the athlete and coming in from the coaches. Um, just to provide to help provide more objective decisions and help check and challenge the interventions and identify any gaps of where we can help improve that performance. So obviously we've got the power meters and all the instrumentation within the bikes. We're tracking things like power, torque, cadence, alongside providing a video and analysis. Um, So we can also get some feedback into what, from a tactical point of view, what's happened during that session. Within the background, those are basically just the basic measures that are coming through off the bike. And then we've got a lot of complex models and algorithms that can help just take that 
a wee bit further for us to really unpick that performance. Trying to take each pieces of those information, so looking at video both from a positional aspect as well as to, we know that aerodynamics plays a big part in a lot of the endurance based events. So we're using both video to provide an overview of what their position looks like on the bike, um, not only at the start of an event, but also how that changes throughout it. Also using it for, as you mentioned, um, looking at can we relate that information to their position on the track, how they've actually approached that race, um, and along then with things like tactical feedback. So if we were simulating things like a Madison or an Omnium, kind of what strategies did we put in place? Did the athlete then, how did they run with them throughout that course? And then we kind of tie that then in with the data coming off the bike. So looking at their power and their cadence to see how that all relates then together. It almost helps evaluate what the coach is seeing too. So if they're thinking, oh, right, we've seen this aspect of performance, has that translated through? Does the data give us the same sort of decision? I find myself wondering just how well the riders deal with all of this, because it's a lot of information and a lot of it can clearly be quite complicated. I asked Steph if it's a case of it being more for the benefit of the coaches or whether all of this information normally goes directly to the riders. It's one of very few sports actually where the athletes are very involved in the process and I think that's because they've got quite a good technical understanding of the different parameters and KPIs that we're looking for within it which is quite nice because then you can bring everyone in on the picture and I guess that just stems from the fact that cycling even as an amateur sport you get so much data that comes through and even at an amateur level athletes are exposed to this type of information so then once you take them into an elite scenario you can really push and challenge them and have these high level conversations. You'll, you'll have a few, the likes of Katie that um, are really involved in the data side of things and get a good understanding, whereas there's some that's just like, right, just tell me what I need to know. Again, it's, it, it's very individual and I guess you get to know that with working alongside different athletes and how they've responded. I think as an analyst, that's where then we come in to try and adjust the way we deliver things. And sometimes that can be different between athletes, but also different coaches. It's one of the things that I enjoy about Team Pursuit is that most of the rest of cycling, I mean, I've described cycling in the past as a skill-free sport. I tend to be a little bit careful about who I describe cycling as a skill-free sport to, but if you've got the engine, there are a lot of cycling events that aren't all that difficult. I mean, if you've got the engine, individual pursuit is not very complicated. Um, if you've got the engine, time trialing is not very complicated. Team pursuit is the absolute opposite. It, it looks complicated. It is complicated. I, you know, watching it on, on television or watching it on the track, I've, I'm always just astonished by the precision under such physical duress. Because that's what, that's what people miss about it, is that it's only a, you know, a four-minute event. It's physically really hard. Brilliant morale boost was Blue Peter once um, had one of their presenters come to a revolution that had been training. A revolution was, um, you'll know this, but uh, a series of track track races. And this Blue Peter presenter had been training uh, for a flying lap, I think it was. And so this was the this was the big day that they would they would do their flying lap and it would be on the TV or whatever. 
And you have no idea how good it felt to see a normal person just make it look so hard, <laughs> to make it just look impossible to ride a track bike, impossible to ride the black line. Just the whole thing. It looked like he was in a space rocket, but he, you know, he hadn't been, <laughs> he'd not been to NASA, you know. Um, and I'm there, like, thank you, you know, a bit of respect <laughs> for what we're about to go and do. That might sometimes look boring <laughs> because because you're doing it right, I guess. Just a quick footnote here. Um, If you're not from the UK, Blue Peter is a UK children's television show which specialises in sending presenters off to try doing things they're not really qualified to do, like track cycling. Although, actually, looking around the state of UK politics at the moment, the concept of only being allowed to do something because you're qualified to do it does seem rather redundant. And it's like the 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 start of a pursuit or a team pursuit, it looks on TV like... Five, four, three, two, one, go, and you are off your ride. And the you know, the difficulty of doing the kind of the you know the eight second half lap. Yeah, well, I, I do have um, that same instinct and enjoyment in trying to plot different sports on where they lie in terms of physicality, technicality, um, uh, physiology versus tri- uh, like nature and nurture, um, and kind of like your your footballs and your one hundred meter sprints and sort of where's the um, where's the middle ground? Uh, and I, th- I think you can see enough talent transfer into cycling to assume that um, unlike swimming, unlike gymnastics, unlike football, th- there's a big enough um, physiological component that if somebody can pick up a bike and transfer what they've got, I guess, yeah, that kind of whatsoever supports your <laughs> supports your viewpoint, I guess. Um, and likewise, I guess one of my big uh, like pushbacks to that would be the uh, the tactical aspects. Um, but that doesn't. I don't think that falls into a skill set. It's. Um... I would. I wouldn't call that a skill. That's you know you can you can learn you can learn to do that. Applying it under pressure. That's a skill, but it's not an impossible skill. Well, it's a two different routes. I can definitely recognise that in my teammates. Um, I would say the Laura Kennys of the world who um, learn by instinct and her racecraft. I don't think. Like she, uh, one of the smartest people I know. Um, and I find it so pleasurable because she's one of the smartest people I know, but the uh, stupid things like she can't spell. Um, and so, or like, but you know, but I would go to her for mortgage advice, you know, like, so what, she's not gonna, um, she's not gonna redraft an essay for me. Um, but it's the same of like, she won't always be able to explicitly um, tell you what you should do in a race, but she will know what she is doing. And it's, it almost, it can't be, it can't always be verbalized for you, but her legs do it, her hands do it, her eyes know where to look, her like her, her elbows know where to shove kind of thing. And um, it comes from this learning of exposure and being in the races far more than I would say myself and maybe like an, an Emily Nelson of the world who kind of um, obsess a lot over the uh, like the analysis and the, the decision-making, going into a race with a plan and saying, this is like, this is how I'm going to approach it. Um, and like both have the risks and both have the rewards. But. So if we talk about kind of the analysis of team pursuit, I mean, every team pursuit training session is is every or is every team pursuit training session supported by performance analysis, video. You know, there's the the little caravan that they've got at uh, Manchester in one of the one end of the day with the screens and the rest of it, and you can see, and particularly you know the squad riders sitting gathered in a little circle on chairs around the caravan while someone delivers a little lecture on what what has just happened and whether it was good or whether it was bad. That's every session, is it? Yeah, uh, the the caravan's been retired with COVID, um, but uh, but we still so we're all in these really big socially distanced pens. Uh, the uh, yeah, so we're all 
I guess probably works we're all huddled around a small laptop now but just only our team um around your own sort of like individual laptop and uh yeah every every effort is filmed and um, we don't film our warm-up um some sometimes you want to just so you can say like did you see what happened there <laughs> um yeah every effort is filmed every effort um has a sort of basic feedback sheet that'll involve um our lap splits our powers um the sort of cadence with those powers uh uh, let me think. Um, we used to we used to track delivery split. Um, so this is your uh, your speed as you exit a turn. Um, and we used to track that as seemingly an important measure for um, how you're uh, delivering the. God, I'll stop with the finger quotations. <laughs> I swear I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> go, 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 go ahead. I, and I love I love kind of people who do punctuation with their fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's something that we've recently canned. So that's some, an inside scoop for you. Decided that's useless. Um, it's, we've actually, we've kind of rattled through performance analysts and it breaks my heart. Um, there's been, yeah, so I had one, we had one through the Rio cycle and she's actually, uh, she left and subsequently came back to British Cycling in a different role. Um, but then we had Roby Day left for the BBC. Um, uh, Lucas, our most recent one, um, who's, uh, I think he's left back to Canada and now, and now we're on to um, Sophie Straw as our current performance analyst. And you sort of, on one hand, you're pulling your hair out thinking like, I've just built a relationship with this person um, for how, like, how I want to interpret the data. On the other hand, there has, there has been an interesting evolution with each different analyst that we get that will say like, that's useless. Why are you doing that? Why don't we bring this in? And, and it kind of punts it forwards. Um, but I just wish we could punt it forwards, maybe just four years at a time. <laughs> so I could, so I could build a relationship with these people, and I'm hoping Sophie stays for stays for a good while. How much of that do you then take across to the bunch race events? Because team pursuit is is so controlled and so precise. Um, how much of it can you? How much of that kind of analysis can you bring to Madison or to Omnium events or points race? Yeah, it was um, it was a couple of years ago now. I was sat in a hotel lobby working away on my laptop. And um, one of my teammates comes and sits next to me and uh, I don't really stop what I'm doing, but I, I don't know what we're both waiting for. And one of the, the men, come, like one of the men's teams comes over and goes like, oh, what are you doing? And my teammate goes, oh, uh, Katie's just figuring out, figuring out the algorithm for how you win a Madison. And I was mortified because obviously this is like, um, I, w- I won't say who it was, but another, like a male rider into the bunch racing, sort of like I was so ready for the eye roll event. I think you'll find there isn't a formula for winning a <laughs> for winning bunch race because there isn't. There definitely isn't. I wasn't claiming there was. But I just don't see there being any harm in breaking down statistical trends. Um, so yeah. So um, what's been so much fun about uh, the Madison project of the Tokyo Olympics? Um, well, I guess I should maybe take a few steps back. Um, I guess I'm calling it the Madison project because this will be the first time there's been a women's Madison at the Olympics. It was um, a like hallmark event of the men's track cycling program. It was taken out in 2012 when they um, equaled the event opportunity, the medal opportunity for men and women. They brought in the Omnium, took out the point race, took out the individual pursuit, brought in the team pursuit. Um, and uh, there's there's always been, I know from speaking, like I've heard other people say with a sense of kind of embarrassment and frustration that they, they knew that the men were annoyed that, to, to like to give the women their medals they'd taken one away and, um but the, the like the truth of it was um chris always 
Britain's most successful, Chris Hoy and Jason Kane are Britain's most successful Olympic champions. Um, and Chris Hoy's peer, Victoria Pendleton, could have never contended um, to, to have the same success. Um, so yeah, uh, so anyway, so now we, we both have an extra medal brought into this Olympic program, and that is the Madison. And it is a um, and, new And you've worked out how to win it. Yeah, I've got the I've got the maths. I'll share it with you after, so if you promise not to tell. Um, no, but, uh, but, but but because it was a new event, it meant that there was um, there was just such a like a, a raw starting point to think. Well, I don't I don't really have anybody handing down their history to me. They also changed the rules at the same time. So the the history of the Madison that the men are tied into um, follow different rules to the current Madison event. I thought it might be helpful to explain the changes to the Madison event. Not only has the UCI, a mere 125 years after the Madison was invented, finally allowed women to ride it, they've changed the rules. The old rule was that laps gained on the rest of the bunch were paramount. If you were a lap up on everyone else, you were winning, and it didn't matter if you had fewer points won from sprints than some of the other teams. Those sprinting points were only used to separate teams that were on the same lap. Now, a lap gain isn't a trump on everybody else. A lap gain is just 20 points, so it's the equivalent of winning four sprints. And there are sprints every 10 laps, whereas it used to be every 20 laps, so there's twice as many sprints. The overall effect of that is that sprints are worth a lot more, laps are worth a lot less, and it's all very different in terms of the tactics. I asked Katie about all of this. I would say, and I don't know whether this is just easy to, like an easy critique to make, um, and there's probably other factors that contribute to this, but I would say that the men's event, I think, still carries a lot of the riding style that applied to that format. And I don't think you see that in the women's race as much. Um, there is a far more predictable flow around the points, um, ar- around the uh, the sprints. Um, and it's still... Like, <laughs> I, I should probably make it really, really clear there isn't a winning formula. But there, there, there are uh, slightly more predictable patterns, certainly at, at this point, it seems. Um, what was kind of fun is that uh, you're trying to, like, analyse this data that's evolving so quickly because um, because more nations are building more depth and the racing standard is going up. Um, but I was saying in the last couple of years, um, there's been some kind of really solid competition that you can... Uh, make predictions on the strengths of of the top nations and that was kind of is that going down to kind of individuals about who's 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 likely to go for a lap early who's likely to go too early who's going to leave it possibly too late and it just you you know you just go in armed with a lot more knowledge about the about the competition is that is or is it are you working more independently of them is a difference in tactics and strategy i suppose do you know do you work out what your strategy is where when is the best moment in a madison to get a lap and that would never move in any madison there'll always be an optimum point on the average of every madison they've ever been so we're going to go at 40 lap for you know 10 kilometers to go I'm not expressing this particularly badly, but that, that balance between whether you're responding to what's happening around you or whether you go in, in with a plan and stick to it, I suppose, is the question. Yeah, so I'd break that into two separate parts. So there's there's one part of approaching a race knowing who you're racing against. Um, and so knowing the um, the trends, the strengths, um, the idiosyncrasies of, of your competitors. And then there's another part that's knowing um, your your shorthand for the race. So things like how often does a team win three sprints in a row? Um, how often does the winning team take a lap? How often um, 
does uh, does or, or how regularly does a typical podium team score? Um, what uh, like this is a really easy one that I'll share. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, I, I'm I'm quite certain that every other nation is doing the same thing and, and knows all of these things. But like a, a, a rule of the thumb would be um, like nine out of ten times the position that you enter a sprint lap is the position that you exit a sprint lap. As in, if you are trying to get your partner in on bell lap which would be your sort of like your optimal, I want to get my partner in with one lap to go. Um, the the position that you put them in is going to be where they come out. So who is it that's really sprinted? Is it the person that crossed the finish line and took the points? No, it's the person that entered that other rider. Sure, the other rider has to ride hard, but they, they have to ride hard for uh, like 15 seconds um, in a straight line. And that like... That, yeah, so so how many times can you put that stress on um, the entering rider? I like how typically where is the where is the leading team positioned when an attack goes um there's there's lots of kind of fun questions you can ask and some of them have interesting answers um and a lot of them don't and it's frustrating that there there aren't really enough hours in a day or certainly i haven't dedicated enough hours in a day to answer all of these questions but i think the process of going through them even if um the answers themselves aren't useful i think that the process uh, has been a, a really useful educational tool I just love this sort of approach to a bike race. It's calmly taking the race apart into its component elements and see how they typically fit together. As Katie says, there's no algorithm, but the more you analyse what's going on in a Madison, or in any other race for that matter, the more you improve your odds. It means that instead of starting the race with nothing much more in your mind other than an end goal of winning, followed by an hour or so of giving it your best guess, you have process goals along the way. You've got intermediate targets about where you want to be positioned, when you want to be there, how the two riders are going to share the workload, and you've got a framework you can use to tell whether things are going well or going badly at any moment in the race. It improves the decision-making by reducing the amount of guessing a rider has to do at a point where they're probably also riding flat out. And one of the nice knock-on effects of that is that it makes the whole process of riding the most chaotic-looking race into something much simpler to deal with and a lot less nerve-shredding. It's like an accelerated way to gain experience in an event. You might say how many have ridden a dozen international-level Madisons, but mentally, you've maybe been through two or three dozen international level Madisons. Experience counts, and this is a way to gain experience. When 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 it all goes wrong, why why does it go wrong? Either you know in team pursuit or in or in Madison or anything else on track. You know what are the you know, what are the key stages to disaster in, in a race? Particularly, let's say let's say team pursuit because when t- team pursuit goes wrong, it goes wrong very quickly. But it often doesn't go wrong for what looks like the obvious reason because the, the, whoever it is who loses the wheel tends to be the one who gets the blame. Oh my goodness, I know. And that's and that's what's so frustrating of the emotional attachment that someone can have to a failure can really, really alter the, com- the commitment and the confidence that they'll go into the next ride with. And so you really want to make sure that you understand why why this has gone wrong because if somebody has the wrong impression then they're too scared to try something next time so like because if somebody if somebody thinks well you know you made me do that two and a half lap first turn and i was so in the red that i couldn't do it we're never doing that again but it it could be that the the pace has accelerated like someone's kicked through on them for example 
just to clarify here, kicking through is when the second rider in the team suddenly accelerates just as the first rider pulls off the line so that everybody else has to make an effort to close the gaps and the rider who's just finished their turn has to dig deeper than they were ready for to get hooked onto the back of the team. It comes under the heading of not a good thing and if you do it in a major event you will not be allowed to forget it in a hurry. It used to be very much my speciality. That sounds like an uneasy... Um like an easy thing to see but it isn't always so i'd say an important debrief is super important because you you want to know like you say why has it gone wrong um so british team pursuiters there's there's pretty much only three words that we shout um it's only in the last couple years that we've introduced a fourth so we shout the british team pursuit team have learned a fourth word here yeah here at the olympics (laughs) oh goodness i I hope not and you'll i'll tell you why soon Um, okay (laughs) Uh, so uh, we had squeeze, which means accelerate. Um, uh, funny tangent side story. When I was my first, so when I was very new to the squad, nobody told me these things. I my first session training with the team. I wasn't on the squad at the time. My first session training with the team, and I'm getting all these shouts of squeeze, but nobody nobody told me this language. So all I can hear is what I think is people saying easy, and I'm like, oh my god, day one, am I already going too fast? <laughs> I am so good at this. <laughs> squeeze means accelerate um hold means don't accelerate so we we don't have a word that means slow down um just uh like the the concept is you never want to slow down but there's definitely there is a tone of voice that someone will shout hold with that you know it means something far more emotive than no more accelerating um so squeeze hold and three uh we shout three to mean somebody's um there's a rider dropped um not necessarily a bad thing but maybe they plan to plan to bail um only three people have to finish so we'll shout three which means that people know to change for three riders rather than four uh the the new one that we won't be hearing um tokyo is a gap so like i said we don't have a word that means slow down and so i've actually been in races before um where I've heard someone shouting hold behind. I've come round and I've seen the coach um, put, like pulling his arms towards me and saying like, come on, like up, up, up. Like it was maybe the last 500 meters or something. So I've got, I've got one person shouting hold, another person being like, like rinse it through to the finish. So I rinsed it, the team blew to pieces. Um, and we needed, like we need, you need something more than hold in those situations. Um, and we, I don't think we've actually used it in a competition, but on, on paper, the agreement is that we'll now shout hold. <laughs> but hopefully you just hope your coach your coach says it um, what was the actual question though I'm sure I was what was the actual question well the question was what, when, it, when it goes wrong mm, how, you know, yeah. wh- why, why does it go wrong um, which you've answered about 75% of yeah I guess it's, 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 yeah, it's not listening to hold when it's, uh, when it's screamed at you but no it's, it's basically it's, um, the, the most efficient way to get from A to B um, is to go on the exact lap split that your physiologist has told you you're all capable of um, and just hold it exactly there until you get to exactly zero. Tank goes empty right at the very finish and that, that never happens. Um, so if you if you accept that that isn't going to happen, it's probably slightly more efficient to go a little bit too hard and then sort of like t- tail off towards the end. Um, and most nations fall into that, into that pattern. The Americans... Um, well, they probably go too far the other way of like proper just rip it out the start. They're, they're probably the fastest starters that you'll see. Um, and the, the current trend actually is that they, they finish quite strong as well with just a sort of like banana in the middle. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it, it, it just goes wrong when somebody um, loses that loses that translation from 
or it loses the calibration, sorry, that, that we actually spend months dialing into. Um, and then you get really nervous, so you just go as hard as you can for one lap when you were meant to go as hard as you can for 16. The, the Great Britain cycling team is, um, is a big organisation. I mean, it's bigger than a lot of other superficially quite uh, similar teams. And there's a lot of time and money going into trying to win things. Um, if you're one of the relatively small number of, of podium level riders, does the sheer scale of the thing and, and the momentum produce a feeling of pressure? It's quite interesting to frame it like that because um, when we, I guess when we reflect on ourselves as riders, I think the team is quite aware of how big a sport we are because cycling encompasses um, track cycling, road cycling, mountain biking, BMX, supercross, BMX freestyle. Uh, there's going to be someone I've offended and forgotten. <laughs> I mean, there's the cross riders, but they don't do the Olympics. Um, so in terms of UK sport, funded sports, um, we're in part such a... a <clears throat> monstrous organization because we encompass so many different um like i think uh if you contrast it to swimming for example i think maybe swimming and diving and there'll be another aquatics that kind of come under the same umbrella so maybe they have the same kind of benefits where um like we use our own gym that's just for cycling we use our own we have our own physio team that's just for the cyclists because you're looking at something there's over a hundred is that true i feel like there's there's probably about a hundred riders because there's like i say so many different sports um, cycling disciplines um, and I think uh, it is it is super intimidating when you first gain entry to the to the club um, <clears throat> I think it doesn't take long before you start to uh, probably roll your eyes and go too far the other way of assuming that um, like oh god well if you knew what it was really like <laughs> you you wouldn't give them a second you know like just that way of when you're so intimidated by something, you can never live up to those expectations. So you, you want to joke that like, oh, you think we're fancy, but it's all a piece of shit, you know, like um, the, the pendulum swings either way. And uh, probably in a, in a public setting like this, if I were to advertise the, the strength of British cycling, um, I, I think there is a lot of truth in the um, the the stature that they hold, the um, the backing of sports science, the um, probably like the the impressions that you've that you've gotten of how to create excellence and the the people that build those cultures and they they are in that building and they are yeah they are high performers katie isn't the only pro cyclist in her family her brother john archibald has represented great britain and scotland and he's a world championships and commonwealth games medalist a little bit more snooping on the internet dug up sister rosie archibald who's an international runner and katie's father ian was a four minute mile middle distance runner if you line all of that up, you realise this is too good an opportunity to miss to have a look at the questions of genetics versus environment in producing elite athletes. So I asked Katie what her take on that debate was. Well, um, yeah, when I was seven, my, my dad picked me and my brother up. I think my mum was in the car as well. It took us, uh, we get in the car and we drive um, three hours or whatever. And you know, when you're kids, you don't really question, you just get in the car, you just do whatever. So we drive three hours and we get out of the car the other side. And I'm seven years old and my dad says, um, I'm just going to go and get your sister. And at this point, I didn't actually realize I had a sister. So Rose is my half sister. So she um, she grew up in Durham. Um, and my my dad was a runner. Um, and she, as a youngster, well, I guess through she's in her thirties now, um, and doesn't run quite as competitive anymore. But her whole life has been uh, a really quite successful runner. Um, and so that, and I guess we can say that that's had very little to do with the the influence of my father in her childhood um, environmentally, but more. 
um, more physiologically, obviously, uh, uh, a lot of her, her mum in there too. Oh, it's like they've been doing experiments on you. Yeah, I've, I have a professional footballer cousin also. Um, my cousin, Theo Archibald, uh, if you want to give him a... Let's just Google, Google, Google everyone. Oh, Googling, my- Googling members <laughs> of Katie Archibald's family. I mean, that's, that's kind of, it's my hobby. So the, the other, the, um, the Edinburgh Archibalds, my, uh, my cousins in Edinburgh. So um, Theo, he's West Coast like us, but um, they're, they're cool as well. Uh, my cousin Callum is into parkour. Are you familiar with parkour? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a family favorite because, um, so like, for example, when he was at school, he, uh, one year he won the school long jump doing a somersault into the sand pit. Like he, he had such a natural talent for jumping that he didn't have to take the jumping competition seriously to win it. Um, so it is really, I, I mean, I, I don't know much about the sport myself, but I got it. He, he looks very impressive at the old parkour. <laughs> so yeah, we've got like, there's, um, thumbs in pies what's the different what's the phrase um there's there's a lot there's a lot about and uh my my most like pleasing way to wrap it all up in a neat bow um that that, that has no answers but just to like contribute to the questions my father was a four minute mile runner um my brother through most of his swimming career which is what he tried to take to a high level to begin with he's obviously he's now making it as a cyclist but he, he wanted to make it as a swimmer um, was 400 meters, uh, 400 meter freestyle, um, was his event. So my father, four minute mile runner, my brother's a four minute, 400 meter swimmer. I don't actually know what his PB, hopefully it's faster than that. But, um, and I'm a pursuiter and the world record is, uh, uh, four minutes, 10 seconds. And so you say, what is it that's drawn us all to these, um, sort of like three to five minute or actually explicitly four minute <laughs> milestones, um, yeah, with a four-minute family, and uh, we, we all like to put it down to the um, mitochondria my, my mother gave us. But there's something that something that my dad's had a hand in. The this, the kind of secondary conversation that springs from from that of like we're you mapping genes for performance, and we've said it like it's quite a simple thing of the perfect athlete, as though we can uh, mark down which traits uh, create the perfect athlete. Because the the thing that gets overlooked all the time is how much of a genetic influence. Um, is involved in your motivation, in your um, uh, your perceived pain. In um, I can't I can't think of other examples, but basically, like the sort of the things that make a whether it's a hard worker or a smart worker, the things that contribute to the things that you think are controllable. Um, and like even I guess we can go further back. You talk about like genes that get switched on or off depending on like what happened in your childhood, and then you get even more frustrated if like God, it's it's not just my mum's fault. I've not got enough mitochondria. It's my mum's fault. I can't catch a ball. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> And I think that's when it, because I know that there's a lot of athletes that take a lot of pride in saying, you know, I'm not very good. I'm not actually very good at the sport. I just try really hard. And it's like, oh, where did you get the try hard from? Who gave you the try hard? You know? Thanks to Katie Archibald and to Steph Blair. Thanks to you for listening. And of course, my thanks to Cycling Weekly magazine for supporting the show. If you like this episode, please tell your friends about it. It really helps people to find us. It'd be great if you could like and subscribe to Faster and rate it as well. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Hutch if you want to get in touch. And if you want to read the book that inspired the podcast, it's also called Faster. And it's available from places that sell books both online and in real life. Faster is produced, mixed and edited by Tom Wally and the team at Strip Media. 
You just heard a stripped media production.